there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in government or advocacy, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has been named a top lobbyist by one of the top newspapers on Capitol Hill twice. And he's been called a powerhouse for those without a voice, a voice for the voiceless. But before I introduce you to Thomas Sheridan, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. And while you're there, I want to invite you to scroll down a bit on the homepage and you'll find a series of boxes organized by career. So no matter what interests you, whether it's international relations or international development or film and theater or finance and business, hopefully you'll be able to find the professionals whose episodes you'll want to binge on. Now, my friends, please grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tom Sheridan, a social worker by training and an advocate by trade. He's someone who brings a unique perspective to his work as a public policy strategist in Washington, D.C., Tom's career spans more than 30 years and has touched nearly all of the transformative social issues of our time, both domestically here in the U.S. and around the world. From the millions of lives saved by the successful advocacy of Bono's One Campaign to the promotion of new financing mechanisms such as the U.S. government's Social Innovation Fund for social problem solving, Tom has catalyzed and provided lead strategic counsel for some of the boldest and most effective public policy campaigns of the last two decades. Tom is also the author of a new book entitled Helping the Good Do Better, How a White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change. Tom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. So I thought maybe we could begin, Tom, with a 101 on what it means to be a lobbyist, what it means to be a lobbyist who's working on public policy campaigns, and how what you do is a version of the lobbying, but not with a black hat, with a white hat, as you would like to say. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, it's a little like the Ginger Rogers quote, which is like a white hat lobbyist has to do the same thing a black hat lobbyist says, except we do it backwards and in high heels. Okay. Um, So it's just much harder for us. We don't have all those same tools in the toolbox, but you know, basically, the first and foremost, lobbying is is a constitutionally protected right in a vibrant democracy. The right to petition your government is a really important and fundamental right to a functioning democracy. So the idea of a, of a lobbyist is, you know, it's connected to a sense of corruption or greed or power. And there are certainly people who use lobbying to advance those kind of values. But there are those of us that don't. And, and that's my job is, you know, is trying to use all the, 
the wheels, power, privileges of a democracy and trying to focus those things on public interest issues and causes that are good common benefit good causes. Frequently, our opposition are the black hat lobbyists. It's true. They always have more than we do, you know, usually more money, but usually more of everything. But what we have more of and what we and what I do every day and what my function is, is to find the people power uh, behind these issues that matter and then organize that power so that they can utilize the leverage in government. How do the halls of government actually work? What's a committee markup going to look like? What are amendments coming from your opposition going to be? And how do you beat them? How do you get the editorial? board of the chairman of the committee to write a positive editorial on your issue or your piece of legislation that's coming before the committee chairman. It's the, you know, it's all those gears that have to be strategically put together and then worked. And in the not-for-profit side, we have to do all that with a great level of efficiency because, you know, money and resources are always limited. Yes, absolutely. So you founded your own firm called the Sheridan Group in 1991. Is that right? I did. Could you give us an overview of what you and your colleagues at your firm do? Maybe give us an example of a campaign that you've created for a client in recent memory and kind of all the moving pieces that are involved in structuring that campaign. Excellent. The firm basically functions with two areas of expertise. We have a domestic portfolio and an international portfolio. So let me give you two examples, one from each. And they're current. They're happening as we speak. So we work with the, all of the Corporation for National Service Corps. So AmeriCorps, Senior Corps, Conservation Corps, all the folks that are funded through the, the Corporation for National Service. So for the last three years, we have been up against the Trump administration zeroing out the existence of the agency. So every year when the, the, the administration submits its budget, it submits a zero. And basically, writes in the in the notes that they want the they want CNCS to be closed. Our job is to make sure that that never becomes a majority opinion on Capitol Hill. And as you know, if anyone's paying attention these days, it is hard when the administration takes a position. It's hard because the bipartisanship we were so used to for so many years around national service starts to fall apart a little bit because the Republican Party is not functioning as a party in the congressional sense that's looking out for the best interests of kind of all Americans are kind of hauling the line a little bit or a lot of it on the Trump administration. So we've been up against a fairly aggressive campaign to try and close down the Corporation for National Service. And we do this every single day. We basically get into congressional districts every single day and we try and use the AmeriCorps folks that are on the ground helping those communities. We try and get those folks that are being helped to tell their members of Congress, particularly their Republican members of Congress, that without these funds, without these volunteers, these AmeriCorps folks on the ground, these things won't happen in your community. Our kids will not have monitors at recess. We won't have mentors or, or you know, after school teachers for reading. We want people cleaning up after hurricanes and tornadoes. We try and get to those districts and make very clear local arguments that these communities would not be as vibrant would in fact be in trouble without the support that we get from the AmeriCorps community. So we're on that campaign every day. In fact, we had just had like a 230 of them here last week on the Hill. We, we try and keep them home as much as possible, but sometimes we do bring them here to do a kind of a massive blitz, particularly as you get to the end of a fiscal year and the money issues become troublesome. You really want to put your, your best foot forward and really press in hard. And we've been successful. We restored the agency's funding back to last year's level. We're actually going to see hopefully a $15 million increase this year. So that's a big success and it's a big uh, it's a big win and it's energizing to win on that. The international portfolio, which is our other portfolio, and I know international development is dear to your heart. And it's, you know, 
the, the world is such a complicated place right now and being made more complicated, I think, unfortunately, by the role America is or isn't playing on the important issues. But we are working on a small issue uh, at the moment, small, but growing, which is confronting violent extremism. This is Boko Haram. It's ISIS. It's it's uh, those kind of extremist groups. They're going into poverty areas, particularly in Africa, and they're not recruiting people on religious orthodoxy. They're recruiting these villages because poverty is what people are most afraid of. And you walk into a village and you hand a man a bag of rice and you say, I will feed your family with this rice, but you have to pick up this gun and fight with me. And by the way, if you don't, I'll kill you all. When those are the equations, we're not going to fight our way out of that. And we're not going to internet recruit our way out of that. That is a very realistic, harsh a series of social problems, hunger, agricultural a deprivation, no financial independence, lack of education, no, no quality health care. So we're working with a really small but incredibly powerful organization called Nuru International. It was founded by a former Annapolis graduate, former special ops commander who was in Iraq and Afghanistan, fought ISIS and Al-Qaeda. He realized you can't fight your way out of this. You have to get in and put a combination of development, defense, and diplomacy together in order to fight these folks in these small villages villages that are super vulnerable. He's pioneered this program in uh, uh, Jay Karamun, the founder. He, he pioneered it in Kenya. He's taken it to Ethiopia. He's right now in Nigeria, working in a Boko Haram region, trying to keep these villages from becoming vulnerable to violent extremism. And when you look at modern day crises and modern day war and atrocities, this is they're coming from these places. And we haven't moved our systems of services and our defensive postures. We haven't moved them out of very old paradigms that frankly don't work against these folks. And, you know, this former Marine, you know, visionary has really created a new model. And we've passed the House of Representatives. The bill has passed. It's called the Global Fragility Act. It passed. We're getting it out of the Senate as we speak. We're hopefully going to do our one and only hearing next week in the United States Senate. And we hope to be, you know, passed out of the United States Senate and on our way to the White House by Christmas. Wow, that is tremendous. So, Tom, could you help us to see sort of the the weeds in these different campaigns and you can pick either the Corporation for National Service or the work that you're doing with the Global Fragility Act and help our young listeners understand just how many moving pieces there are when you're building campaigns like this and as someone who spent about eight years in your world but who learned much of it on the job from some incredibly talented and knowledgeable colleagues that I had. What I came to realize is that building a strong advocacy campaign is almost like playing three-dimensional chess. (laughs) There are so many layers to it. I don't know if that resonates with you, but maybe you would kind of take things from here. Completely true. This is oversimplified, but I think it will help with your uh, listeners. We call our theory of change the three Ps, that any good movement or campaign has to have these three essential components and how you work them together is where and how you become successful. So the first P is what we call policy. This is actually understanding the problem and having deep knowledge of it and a solution that you know can work. So that there's data to support it. There's been demonstration programs that prove that your theory of change could actually be helpful. And it has to be both. It has to be both a problem and a solution because policy doesn't, it doesn't, it's not an articulate, it's not a, a forum for articulating problems because it, it doesn't do anything. It's the solution that becomes the policy. And so, but you have to have both and you have to work hard to make sure that those are well-founded, well-understood and highly credible. The second P is politics. This is how 
those become law. It's how, you know, markups happen. It's how votes get traded. It's how, you know, amendments get added. It, it is how the politics of the, the day works. It's the rough and tumble of how you get policy to actually see its way through to a piece of legislation and a signature by a president. And politics for me in, uh, and for not-for-profit folks is people. It's, it's how do you organize people, passionate people who put this issue in the forefront of the way they behave as voters and talk to their members of Congress about why this issue is a priority and why they want it solved. So that's the second P of politics. The third P I call press, which is really the validation of the community writ large, the ability for people to read about, hear about, see that this problem is in fact real in their community, in their city, in their state, in their world, and that there are solutions that are valid to fix it. So it's kind of third party validation in a in a big sense. And it's, you know, it's how social media covers it or handles it. It's how editorial boards will write on it. It's how letters to the editor are frequently populating a local newspaper that we know members of Congress read. They read their letters to the editor. That's what their constituents are thinking. They want to have their fingers on that pulse. So we use those three Ps, policy, politics, and press, in every single strategy we put together. Then it's the combination. It's a little bit like a Ouija board. You're kind of moving those three Ps on the board. As you said, it was a great analogy. You're using those three Ps in a three-dimensional chess game. It's never static. It's always dynamic. And no two campaigns are ever the same, but these elements are essential to being successful. Yes. So could you pull out maybe a tactic that you've employed in one or the other of the campaigns that you outlined for us that falls under one of those three P's? And just tease out, I mean, you did mention you had a Hill Lobby Day recently in which you brought in people, real people, from the districts of members and brought them to Capitol Hill. Yeah, so lobby days and fly-ins are great. I'm a big believer in doing congressional district events, trying to bring members of Congress to programs and services so they can see in real time what the benefit or successes of those programs actually look like on the ground. Once people see something in action, once they see real human suffering believed in some way, it really does change the way you have a conversation about support or not. Having a flat conversation about billions of dollars or millions of people about a, you know, a, a piece of legislation with an S or an HR on it, it, it flattens the humanity around social issues particularly. So I try and always keep a three-dimensional figure in front of members of Congress as much as we possibly can. And sometimes that's people power, just bringing them to people or bringing people here to Washington to see them and to tell their stories. Storytelling is hugely important, very powerful. When that's been harder to do, We've, you know, we've engaged tactics that, that will just get people's attention. I was working on family medical leave many years ago, and we were having a hard time getting people's attention about the fact that kids were really the vulnerable population. So we got like cardboard cutouts of photographs of children, random children, and we put them in front of every single member's office at seven o'clock in the morning so that when they showed up to open their office doors, they had to step over a, you know, a, a picture of a kid and it had a message on it that said, you know, this kid's life is vulnerable if you don't pass the Family Medical Leave Act. Like we, you know, um, on the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, we were having a hard time getting people to understand why people with disabilities required civil rights protections. So we called a press conference on the Capitol steps and all of the folks that we got organized to get there in wheelchairs with walkers and crutches and everything else dropped their assisted devices, their wheelchair, their crutch, et cetera. And they crawled up the steps of the Capitol building to show that not everyone has even access to a building, the building that is their capital because they're, they're a person with a disability. And it was very dramatic. And the press kind of, you know, because it was so dramatic, they ate it up, but it got our point across. It was, you know, an iconic 
moment and it, and it wound up being a fairly iconic photograph for why the ADA was, you know, was the next most important chapter in our civil rights history. Oh my gosh. As you told that story, Tom, I actually got goosebumps just imagining the people crawling their way up into the Capitol. Yep. So you touched on one soft skill, and maybe it isn't even soft. Maybe it's something that's really acquired, and that is storytelling. It's something that you can hone. What are other skills that you think are kind of essential to be a kick-ass lobbyist? I'm imagining, because you already said you're not a business guy, you don't like crunching the numbers and doing all that stuff, but I can tell you are super creative. Do you think that's an essential ingredient? I don't know how creative I am. I think I'm really tenacious. So I, you know, I really think of myself as more tenacity. If one thing doesn't work, I try something else. I just keep trying and trying and trying until I find something that works. I did say, I, you know, I'm not an MBA. Don't like crunching numbers. I hate meeting with my accountant. But I will tell you, a very important skill is counting. You have to be able to count to win. So, you know, I always say to people, it's nice that you can pass this bill without making any amendments, but you only have 40 votes, so you can't pass it. You got to get to 51 or you got to get to 60 or, you know, or 218 in the House of Representatives. There are real numbers that you have to get to. And it, at some level, I think it drives a lot of discipline that I use in my practice every day is that, you know, it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel, what it matters is, did you get to a majority? Can you get that bill to win? And it helps you with the practicalities of compromise. And sometimes, particularly, honestly, on the progressive left side, compromise is sometimes perceived as a dirty word. Well, don't play in the legislative environment if you don't want to deal with compromise. That's what it was created to do. So, you know, just to be in democracy, to be in legislation in a democracy is to embrace the idea of compromise. And, and a good strategy goes that and knows how to count those numbers in order to get to a win. I've mentioned your book, Helping the Good Do Better, How a White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change, and we'll have a link on show notes, so anybody who wants to check it out and buy it, of course. How has lobbying changed, Tom, since you got into it 30 years ago? Yeah, you know, the, the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United was singularly a major blow to democracy, but it was a real blow to progressive public interest lobbying. We don't play on the same playing field. Private corporations are treated like people and they're basically unfettered and there's almost no rule for what they can and can't do. I work for not-for-profits and we are tied up in, you know, as much legalese and red tape as you could possibly wrap around us. You know, if you're a C3, you can't say this. If you're a C4, you can't do that. If you're, you know, a PAC, you can't give more than X. You know, we're we're highly, highly hamstrung and regulated as not-for-profit public interest groups. And the private sector is simply not. And as a result of that, the playing field is so unbalanced. And I think that's why you see the frustration that you hear from Americans of all political parties that Congress can't get anything done and can't get anything done that people care about and people appreciate because it's been tied up in money. And I think we have to get to the bottom of that. And I, you know, I was so encouraged that the first bill that House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi passed was H.R. 1, which is really to end Citizens United and the influence it's had on democracy. Um, it was the first priority and it was the most important priority in my judgment because the whole system doesn't function well when money is, is such a pervasive and corrupting influence. But I will also say to your listeners, we have to understand why money plays this role. And it's because too many of us allow a 30-second commercial on our TVs to tell us who to vote for. We don't do our own homework. We don't engage in town hall meetings. We do not do the participatory work of democracy, and therefore people can buy 
your opinion or can buy your impression on, on hard media, on social media, on soft media. People are buying your opinion, not with truth, but with dollars. And at the end of the day, if we give that up, if we give up our own sense of truth or truth finding and, and the active effort of being a citizen, we won't be able to save the democracy because we, we gave up the heart of it. And the heart of it is our hearts and souls and our minds and our ability to ask our own questions and get to our own answers. The notion that you know now people only rely on one news source for if they rely on news at all is a really frightening moment in democracy and it, and it strikes at the it strikes at the heart of it and so those things are the you know that's the big change but it's also the, the big challenge that I think we are we're going to have to confront and, and we're in that we're in that battle right now too. we're in that battle today Tom I'd like to flash back to when you were in college you majored in social work at Dominican College did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No, uh, I did not, honestly. I had been working in a group home for people with developmental disabilities. And my first job was to get the group home open. Uh, so I, I had to go to a zoning board, the zoning board in my hometown, to get the permit to open the house. And if you want to see raw, nasty politics in action, meet your local zoning board. So I had a very long taste of politics, uh, hard politics, nasty politics in my hometown doing my first task and my first job while I was in college. So I had this kind of very deep political instinct or experience that said, if you're not changing the politics and you're not working the politics, you're not going to get the work done. The services don't come if the politics go wrong. And that was very true. And I couldn't have opened that house. If I didn't get that permit, the zoning variance from the zoning board. So it was kind of just there in my face at the very first early moments of my career. And that's, I think, what catalyzed my perspective that I had to play in policy if I wanted to play in social work, because that's where the that's where the power was. And that's where the that's where the rules are written. And if you want to solve problems, you, know, you got to solve them in the court of public opinion and in the halls of public policymaking places like city halls or zoning boards or state legislatures or the Capitol. A hundred percent. And one of the many things that I learned during the time that I spent in the field of advocacy was to recognize that you can use policy change and the push for policy change to really reach scale. And it's wonderful. And we need people who are working in those group homes and we need people who are doing that close touch but if you don't have people working to keep the right rules and regulations on the books, a lot of that can be for naught. Exactly. I, in the middle of the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s, we were you know, struggling hard to fundraise, to, you know, to keep the lobby going. It was really rough. And I said to a group of funders one day, you know, we had, you know, at that point, Elizabeth Taylor was helping us a little bit. We had some celebrity support uh, around the world. But I said, look, Elizabeth Taylor, Barbara Streisand, and all the celebrities in Hollywood could pose naked for a photograph or throw a concert, you know, in somebody's backyard in Los Angeles and not do what became the Ryan White Care Act could do in terms of paying for people with AIDS to get care and services. That one great fundraiser is going to net you a few million dollars. A bill like Ryan White has created billions of dollars for people who needed it and wouldn't have wouldn't be alive today without it. And there's just a practicality to understanding what scale really means. And that scale is just not achievable 
without government. It just isn't. And frankly, it shouldn't be. Government has to be a partner in that. And the notion that people say that this is not the role of government is essentially to say that we are not, at the end of the day, a human community. Government is just an expression of community. It's how we care for each other. It's, you know, it's, it's a system that, that proves that we can and will care for each other. And if we want to give that up, then we should give up government. But every time I hear people talk about how bad government is, yeah, is it inefficient? Yes. Is it bureaucratic? Yes. You know, can we do a lot better? Really? Yeah. But at the end of the day, government is our expression of community and our capacity to care for one another. And scale is only achievable in partnership with it. So eloquently said. Thank you for that. Tom, I try to ask all of my guests, especially those like you who have a lot of success under your belt, who've achieved quite a bit of celebrity and and whatnot, to share a time in their professional life when they really struggled. Because I think for our young listeners, they look and they see the LinkedIn profiles, they read the press releases and and whatnot, and they think that it's all just been up, 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 and that even a Tom Sheridan has never had a bad day. Could you share an experience that you've had, a failure of some kind, maybe you lost a big client or suffered a huge legislative loss, whatever it was, could you share what that experience was, how you persevered, and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. Yeah, I tell the story in the book, but I'll, I'll give you the short version of it. I was uh, I was the chair of the lobby task force that was uh, moving the Americans with Disabilities Act forward, but we were just a coalition of, of organizations that were donating our time. I was working for AIDS Action Council, but I was chairing the, the effort for the entire disability community to get the ADA done. We were at the very end of the process of moving the ADA, and we went to the House of Representatives to pass the bill, and out of the blue, a Democrat from Texas amended the ADA to keep people with AIDS from being hired as food handlers. So they were prohibited from using the ADA as a protection. And it was a poison pill amendment. It was done by the National Restaurant Association, and it was done on purpose on behalf of the business community to try and weaken the ADA and to find a way to get into it, to challenge it in court, if and when we had ever passed it. And it was devastating because we didn't see it coming. And I was also passing Ryan White at the same time, so I was tired. And I probably just didn't, I just didn't do my homework, I guess. I didn't see this. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming from the Democratic side, particularly. And it happened. And suddenly the entire ADA was in a free fall almost going down the tubes. And my colleagues in the disability community, some of whom rightly called, kind of called me out and said, look, you have a conflict of interest here. We cannot give up this entire bill for one disability, one population. And you have a conflict because it's your population. That, that's, that's the victim here. So you know, you got to kind of resign your position and, you know, step away from the table and let us uh, take the strategy forward. And it was a crushing moment for me. And I was just very lucky that my colleagues, the other leadership team, folks that were working on the legal side and the grassroots side, the majority of those folks, I left the room and the majority of those folks basically say, we want them back in and we want them to stay in this position and we're going to fight back. And we had the fight back was very risky. We had to take it back to the Senate. We had to pass a new version in the Senate, bring it back to the House. We had very little time to do it. We had obviously exposed the underbelly of AIDS inside the ADA. So it was bringing out all the right-wing extremists. You know, Jesse Helms and all those guys were going to were gonna be aware and come for us. And we knew it. So it was going to be rough, extremely rough. But the leadership of that community basically said, look, if we let one disability go, we all go. 
at some point they come for all of us. And we hung in there as a community and it was hard and we won. It was the most bizarre 48 hours of my legislative career, you know, writing amendments and second degree amendments and third degree amendments and writing exceptions to the bill. We were doing this on legal paper in the Senate anteroom trying to get something that would pass. And finally, we found something that we could get Republicans on board for uh, and then hold them to get the bill all the way to the president. But it was a very sobering, very dangerous moment. And you realize that you have a lot of power and people's lives are, are hanging at some level in the balance, the entire disability community. And I started my career working with people with disabilities. So I knew whose lives were in the balance. They had names and faces. And I have a cousin with Down syndrome. I have a niece now with Down syndrome. So I mean, I knew these things had real consequences and we were risking it. But in the end, the story ends well, but it was a very difficult moment. What was the lesson that you think you took away from that experience, Tom? It is why coalitions matter. When people hang together, the power of hanging together is really important. And, you know, we have a culture sometimes that says, you know, pull your own self up by the bootstraps. We have this thing that sometimes creeps into our culture and into our politics. It says you're, you're kind of on your own, you know, you kill. And we are our better selves. We are, as Lincoln would call us, we are our better angels when we're working together. And when those folks stood with me and hung together, we did make the ADA a stronger bill. We made lots of people less vulnerable, not just people with HIV and AIDS. But it took very courageous acts of courage and a huge amount of selflessness to hold together. So, you know, coalitions are tough to manage. There's lots of personalities. There's lots of egos. There's credit taking and giving. There's a lot that goes into managing a successful coalition. But if you do it well, and you pay attention to to why that relationship is important, particularly when you're at your most vulnerable moment, there's nothing more powerful and there's nothing that you will appreciate more. Well, I think you showed where your tenacity came into play, didn't you? Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to Dominican College in New York and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Tom, what advice would you give yourself? Enjoy learning more. You know, I was anxious to get out of school. I was kind of checking the box. I was, you know, I was getting through the class. I had a full scholarship, so I had to get nothing less than a B in any of my classes. So I was, I was so analytically functional about my academic career that I don't think I truly appreciated the privilege of learning, uh, particularly at an undergraduate school level. When you have that time to learn, to study, to read, you know, I, you know, we were supposed to read the great books. So, you know, I went to a very kind of liberal arts, formal Catholic college. So our first two years were very you know, traditional learning. And you know, I read all of the, of the classics and I did all that work, but I was kind of punching my way through it, not savoring it at the moment. Graduate school is the moment, is the place to get expertise. But undergrad school is the place to enjoy learning and to learn how to learn and how to be curious and what goes into the rigor of curiosity when you're trying to find answers, which is really helpful for policy work. So I think I would go back, if I were to go back or I were to give advice to people who are starting out again, I would just say, enjoy learning and savor the opportunity to be curious and to and to work on the discipline that learning gives you to answer your curiosities because that will serve you well no matter what you do for the rest of your life. Oh, that is just wonderful wisdom, Tom. Tom's book is entitled Helping the Good Do Better: 
how a white hat lobbyist advocates for social change. Tom, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about what you do at your firm and how you built your really remarkable career. I enjoyed talking to you. It was really fun. I just finished my latte too, so we're we're, we're right on time. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.